Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. This is, of course, the 14th day of October in the year 2021. Nope, the year is not over yet. However, it is in my favorite month, October, so we will make do. Um, now, we were talking about T regulatory cells way back, um, I think about 10 days ago. Um, I had a hiatus from doing these podcasts because I was out of town. And for a good reason, my older daughter got married in Chicago. So that's why I was absent. So I'm not going to apologize for that because I was glad to do it. So I just wanted to inform you that's why I've been gone for a few days. Now, we have been talking, I recollect, about T regulatory cells. And we're uh, now advancing into the last stages of our discussion of aging, as you know. And I wanted to just cover more ground about T lymphocytes, B lymphocytes before we finish off. Because as it turns out, the immune system is incredibly important for the aging process sensu stricto, as well as to malfunctions leading to pathophysiology and pathobiochemistry. Um, as one ages, leading then to multiple levels of non-integrated pathophysiology, both the kind that involves a hypoimmune state and one that can induce a hyperimmune state, both of which can lead to a high morbidity and indeed mortality, and therefore major contributing factors for uh, death as we get uh, up in years. So <clears throat> let's get right back into this T regulatory cell discussion. Um, okay, so <clears throat> start off with CD4, CD8 double positive T cells in the thymus. And then they are exposed there to a cortical epithelial cell, which is going to have a MHC2 class self-antigen bound. There's also, of course, going to be the co-stimulatory signal. <clears throat> now, when you have low T-cell self-reactivity with that self-antigen, those T-cells will migrate into the periphery. They'll leave the thymus. Remember, it's going to be involuting anyway as we age. And what will happen is in the periphery, you're going to have now just a CD4 positive naive T cell. Now, that cell will have uh, the T cell receptor active that has been programmed not to deal, not to interact with self-antigen. And it will also be a cell that can produce TGF beta and interleukin-2. Those are two cytokines. <clears throat> so... When that occurs and those two cytokines are made available to that CD4 positive naive T cell in the periphery, you're going to end up with the following. You're going to end up with a molecular signature of CD4 positive, CD25 positive, now FOXP3, remember that's the main transcription factor in Tregs, now FOXP3 positive T cells. Now in the presence of TGF beta, you're going to have some partial demethylation occurring and, uh, of some specific loci. And when that happens, you're going to have what is known as an uncommitted 
CD4 positive, CD25 positive, FOXP3 positive T cell. This is going to be a regular peripheral T regulatory cell. So we call these PT regs. Okay, now go back to the thymus. And remember when you had the double positive, CD4, CD8 double positive stage on the T lymphocyte. Now, again, if it reacts with uh, MHC class 2 self-antigen, for example, in association with the cortical epithelial cell plus the co-stimulatory factor, if you have a high TC receptor self-reactivity, those cells are going to completely apoptose. So you're going to eliminate those. So that's negative selection, right? You get that high TCR self-reactivity, those cells are not wanted, so you eliminate them via programmed cell death. If you have an intermediate self-reactivity <laughs> and also a strong TGF beta signal, you're going to end up with cells that have CD4, CD25 positive, but they're not going to be FOXP3. They're going to be FOXP3 minus T cells. Now you take those intermediates and you expose those to two other cytokines, interleukin 2 and 15. Then now you're going to jack up the expression of the transcription factor FOXP3. So your this is all in the thymus still. Here you're at CD4, CD25, both positive, FOXP3 positive, which is going to have the transcription factor of a, T, of a regulatory C, T cell. And then after, again, a couple of demethylations of key genes in that cell lineage, you're going to end up with a committed CD4 positive, CD25 positive, FOXP3 positive T cell, which is a T regulatory cell. <clears throat> so you have uncommitted in the periphery and you have committed uh, T regs in the thymus after that set of um, transformations occurring because of the, the various uh, stimulation of uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines or, reg or growth factors and then, of course, the induction of the expression of the transcription factors. So basically, Treg cells develop in the thymus and the periphery, is what I'm saying. And in the thymus, again, you have CD4 positive, CD8 positive T cells, and they're going to undergo that negative selection to mature into TT regs. And they're going to do it with those various cytokines I told you, and look at 215 and TGF beta. And then the periphery is going to be different. You're going to have CD4 positive only T cells now. They're naive. And they're going to encounter antigen. But they'll differentiate into what are known as PT regs or peripheral T regs. And that's going to occur, again, only in the presence of TGF beta cytokine and uh, some interleukin 2. Okay? So now that you get an idea how T regs are going to differentiate. Now, I want to remind you of a specific type of T cell that I discussed with you a while back. These are lymphoid cells indeed, but they're, they're of a lineage that can be uh, interconvertible. So a paper published in Cell Reports in 2015 and a paper that I want to direct your attention to published in Experimental Molecular Medicine in 2019, I'll put these in the show notes, these references, to tell us the following. <clears throat> so let me back up and just give you this understanding of B and T lymphocytes. This adaptive immune system, which the, these two cells are the major players in, actually arose rather late in animal evolution. And these B and T lymphocytes express 
a recombining antigen-specific receptor. And I know you remember this because I talked about it. So remember, you have 9T and B cells, and they're activated by a cognate antigen in the secondary lymphoid organ. And then they undergo significant cell division and then differentiation before finally exerting their effector function. In contrast, innate lymphocytes display that rapid effector function, right? Despite their set of limited germline encoded receptors, they still go do a fair amount of work in the immune response. For more than three decades, uh, when these, these T lymphocytes have been studied, natural killer cells were really the only recognized innate lymphocytes, innate lymphocytes. Now, more recently, again, starting after 2010, additional innate lymphocytes were discovered and described. Okay. And now we know that they're considered to be a part of the effector cell lineage, and they're collectively called innate lymphoid cells, or ILCs. So they have a lymphoid morphology, but they lack a rearranged antigen receptor, and yet they are abundantly present in mucosal surfaces, as you might guess, for example, in the enteric lamina propria. So the expression of lineage-specific transcription factors you know, you know how this works. With in combination with discrete cytokine profiles, then uh, allowed us to to identify distinct ILC subsets, and they're very similar to the subsets we find in T helper cells. <clears throat> so the main ILCs are actually killer ILCs, and they comprise the NK cells themselves, sensu stricto, and then the so-called helper-like ILCs. See, like T helper cells, but they're not T T helper cells, right? And these are going to be called ILCs 1, 2, and 3 subtype lineages. So group 1 ILCs resemble TH1 cells, and they include natural killer cells that interfere on gamma-producing innate effectors. Um, ILC1s are shown to depend on T-bet as a transcription factor, but also interleukin-7 and interleukin-15 as costimulatory. Group 2 ILCs are similar to TH2 cells, as you might guess, but they use the ROR-alpha and the ROR-gamma-T transcription factors, but also GATA-3 for the expression of their genes. They are indeed absolutely dependent on interleukin-7, and they produce ultimately interleukins 15 and 13. So you start off with a common lymphocyte precursor cell. Then you start expressing infill 3, and I'll mention what that is soon. Okay, that's basically a transcription factor. <clears throat> and those cells are now going to be called global ILC progenitors or GILPs. Okay. And they're going to differentiate in one of two ways. In the expression of ID2 positive, and still with NFIL3 as transcription factor, you're going to make the natural killer precursor, and then the natural killer precursor will differentiate finally into NK cells with the expression of EOM1, which is its own transcription factor. Now, same time, the global ILC progenitor cells can differentiate into 
common helper-like innate lymphoid cells. And those common helper innate lymphoid cells will first differentiate because of expression of ID2 and PLZF positive. They're going to be ILT positive and PLZF positive. So they're double positive for those transcription factors. They're going to be the actual innate lymphocyte precursor final cell lineages. And they're going to give you, if you have a, if you have a transcription uh, factor TBAT made, those are going to be ILC1s. If you have GATA3, as I said, you're going to have ILC2. If you generate transcription factor ROR gamma T, now that's going to bring a retinoic acid, remember, you're going to have two different lineages. You're going to have NCR positive and negative. Now, what's NCR? That's another, uh, that's not a receptor, and that is the natural cytotoxicity receptor. So ROR gamma T's can either be NCR minus or positive. And you also have a ROR gamma T that will express LT1, but all three of those lineages are going to be called the ILC3 class. Okay. Now a little bit more about this. Regulatory T cells are, as I have been mentioning, CD4 T cell subset with a really important uh, uh, role, I guess I would say, in the immune tolerance uh, pathways. However, the mechanisms that underlie Treg cell differentiation function, we still don't know everything about. This was even up to like last year. And although papers are being written all the time, we don't have the full story. So if you have INVIL3 and this uh, other transcription factor, E4BP4, they play a very important role together in Treg cell differentiation function. So when a macro, uh, microarray analysis was done on transcripts um, from the Treg uh, differentiation lineage. Treg cells had lower infill 3 expression than other CD4 positive T cell subsets. And indeed, overexpression of infill 3 in Tregs leads to the diminished expression of FOXP3, which you know is the um, poster transcription factor for Tregs. <clears throat> you get diminished expression of FOXP3 if you have high infill 3. You also get other signature genes um, being uh, 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 no longer expressed at high levels. These include interleukin-2 receptor alpha, the ICOS gene, and the TNF receptor SF18, and of course the CTLA4. Okay. Now beyond that, Infill 3 overexpressing Treg cells will exhibit, because of all these changes down in transcription, an impaired immunosuppressive activity. Now, that occurs when you study the differentiation in vitro, but also in vivo. And this happens also, I will say, as we age. Okay. So when you have Infill 3 active, it will directly bind and negatively regulate the expression of FOXP3. Beyond that, when you do bisulfite sequencing, you can see that infill 3 induces methylation at the FOXP3 locus, and specifically at CPG uh, methylation sites. And that, of course, is going to contribute to the control of Treg cell 
stability, as we mentioned last time. So the data altogether indicate that infill 3 impairs Treg cell function. And it does it, as you might guess, by downregulating FOXP3 expression. So I wanted to put all that in there because that's a key feature that we don't often describe. Now, here's a little bit of evolutionary biology about um, T cells that I think you might find uh, interesting. And also, and also B cells because they both carry out recombination. So <clears throat> there are two variations of recombinatorial adaptive immune systems known as AISs, and they arose in vertebrates about a half a billion years ago. Okay, So not that recently, but certainly way after the innate immune system. Now, the jawed vertebrates diversify their repertoire of immunoglobulin domain-based T and B cell antigen receptors, mainly through the rearrangement of that VDJ gene segment, right? That's the recombination we've talked about in the past. Now go over it again if you like. Send me an email. Um, but you also have somatic hypermutation, remember. So AIS, again, this is the adaptive immune systems, okay, of jawless vertebrates contains a variable lymphocyte receptor or a VLR and those are generated directly through recombination of a diverse leucine-rich repeat, or an LRR sequence in the protein. So what about, uh, how do we get this AIS in jawed vertebrates? Well, there's a transposon-like recombination activation uniquely associated with the origin of the AIS. And that's only in the jawed vertebrates. But mutational activation-induced cytidine deaminase is actually where we get higher vertebrate, that is mammal, that is human, finally T lymphocyte differentiation after evolution. So you have a basic AIS design, adaptive immune system design with recombination mechanisms, and it features two interactive T and B lymphocyte uh, molecular arms. And you see them in both jawed and in jawless vertebrates. And all of that arises from innate immunity. Now, a little bit about this uh, deaminase, uh, cytidine deaminase um, mutation leading to the T lymphocytes in the jawed vertebrates, particularly the mammals. <clears throat> you have an activation induced cytidine deaminase or an AID. And really, that's essential for the regulator of B cell differentiation. So what does, what this AID does, activation-induced cytidine deaminase, it functions by deaminating cytidine, and that's coupled with a base excision or sometimes in mismatch recombination repair mechanisms and then functions, the function of that then is as a mutator, right? So this is a built-in mutation device. And that becomes essential in adaptive immunity class switch recombination. And in fact, what we call somatic hypermutation. And all that helps to generate a diverse and highly uh, active and with very strong affinity 
of a repertoire of immunoglobulin isotype differentiated forms. Okay. So also active with the epigenetic signature methylated cytidines, because that's when you couple the repair process. And what you get then is an active removal of the entire methylated DNA. Don't you know? So you start off with a cytosine again, you get this AID, you get this deamination, you make a uracil, of course, then you get DNA replication next round. And what was a CG now becomes an AT. And that's how you pick up these mutations, leading then to this whole recombination subset, which becomes your acquired immune cell lineages. This was, we were talking here about B cell diversification, but the T cell diversification is very similar because they both work through, um, you know, the VLRs, right? So, okay. So now you get that whole story there. Let me uh, kind of summarize adaptive immune cells. I know I should do it now, so I'm going to do it. So in general, the adaptive immune system has two branches, cellular immunity. That means cell-cell contact is necessary, right? And that's mediated by T lymphocytes. And then you have the humoral, which basically just means of the blood, humoral immunity, and that comes about by B cells. That doesn't always involve direct cell-cell contact. So you have both B and T cells, and they're directed against specific antigens. Now that, of course, is in direct contrast. So it's contrarian. It is not contradictory to the innate immune cell structure-function relationship. Now, cytotoxic T cells will directly kill infected cells, and what they'll do is just to turn on apoptosis. The T helper cells we talk about, like Th1 and 2 and 17, they activate other immune cells to fully mature them or sometimes just to become more effective. Now, mature B cells, also known as plasma cells, remember, they secrete what everybody calls antibodies, but what I call immunoglobulins, because that's what they are. These are glycoproteins. And they are secreted against specific antigens, right? Like when you get a viral infection or you get a vaccination to a virus. Now, plasma cells will undergo what's known as isotype switching. And what they do then is they produce uh, a bunch of different immunoglobulins that can perform different functions in response still to the same antigen. So you have the adaptive immune system producing memory cells, ultimately, And those are going to respond quicker in a second round of infection from the same pathogen. So that's when you get a spike, for example, in the production of antibodies. So I want you to fully appreciate that, how that functions, okay? Because a lot of times it's not brought up how uh, antibiotic production is turned on. We can go into more detail, but right now I'm just talking, I want to to give this whole process real quickly about adaptive lineages. So... Adaptive immune cells, when they're cell-mediated, you get T-cells. They mature in the thymus. That's why they're called T-cells. You have CDA-positive cytotoxic T-cells, and those are going to eventually induce apoptosis in the target cell. And they recognize only major histocompatibility complex 1. Those are are going to be receptors that hold antigen. Now, CD4-positive 
upper T cells, so-called, the other lineage from the progenitor T cells, they're going to recognize MHC class two, as we've been saying. And you have three different uh, groups, at least initially. You have Th1, Th2, and Th17. Th1 activates macrophages to destroy pathogens. And it also has B cell activation role. That's what Th1 is. Very important for activating B cells. Th2 also acts, uh, interacts with B cells and activates them. And Th17 acts rather independently, kind of the non-conformist of the group. Uh, and that fights fungal infections more specifically. Now, when you have the humoral phase in the B cells, remember you have plasma cells and memory B cells. Plasma cells are all going to secrete antibodies. What kind? Well, you're going to have IgM. Now, IgM is really, the M stands for membrane. So that doesn't really get secreted, although that IgM can be released from the cell surface. But you have IgM, then you have IgD, IgG, IgA, and IgE. Now, IgG, that's the most common antibody, immunoglobulin G, that's what circulates in your blood. The IgA is mucosal immunity, the mucosal surfaces. And then IgE, of course, is associated with mast cell and basophil binding. Now, all those different Ig fractions involve isotype switching, right? It's another molecular mechanism. Now, memory B cells will produce for ultimately the plasma cells and they directly secrete basically just IgG on the body. And that happens again in second and subsequent exposures to antigen. Okay. That's a very brief overview now on the T and B cell lineage. Okay. Now I want you to understand that's really, really important. So remember how all this starts. You have a hemocytoplast and it can make a pro-erythroblast, which can become, after differentiation, to a polychromatic erythroblast, and finally erythrocytes. Or that same hemocytoplast can make a myoblast, forming a progranulocyte, and then after differentiation to a basophil, and a cinephil or a neutrophil, those are all called granulocytes. The hemocytoblast can also make a lymphoblast, making a lymphocyte, or a monoblast making a monocyte, and both the lymphocytes and the monocytes are called agranulocytes. So you have granulocytes and agranulocytes, and both of those are still leukocytes. Uh, and you just do have one subset of leukocytes called lymphocytes, right, which we just went to detail with the last uh, half hour. Now, one more thing a hemocytoblast can do, then we'll finish for today. You can make a megakaryoblast. That will make a megakaryocyte. And after differentiation, it would make the thrombocytes. Okay. So I think we've covered now just basic, uh, you know, T cell innate immune responses. Uh, not so much about the response, but the cell lineages and what's necessary for that differentiation to occur. Um, and um, I think I could probably finish with this. Now, it's going to include lipids. So I know all of you are going to be super, super happy about this, right? I don't get happy. I just feel fulfilled when I talk about lipids, right? Because happiness isn't something I'm interested in, really. Now, paper published in Frontiers of Cell Developmental Biology, not too long ago, two years ago, tells me this. That's going to go quick because I only have about a minute and a half. 
The neutral sphingomyelinase 2 is an enzyme that converts sphingomyelin to ceramide and phosphatidylcholine because it's sphingomyelinase, right? Now, subsequent to phosphorylation of that enzyme, there will become a conformational change in the polypeptide backbone, and that'll render it available to bind to membrane phosphatidylserine. And that, when that happens, it fully activates the enzyme. And then it is abundantly expressed, the same enzyme interacting with a phosphatidylserine there. Um, it will be abundantly expressed in, guess what, immune cell lineages. But you also see it in the central nervous system. Uh-huh. That neutral sphingomyelinase 2. Now, the formal cationic amino group of phosphatidylserine is the bridge to the anionic phosphate. That's the way it works. The role of that neutral sphingomyelinase 2 in cytokine, that includes interleukin-1 beta, TNF-alpha, and interferon gamma induced inflammation and bacterial infections. Well, that's replete in the literature. But this NSM activation after antibody ligation of the T cell receptor um, took a, lot, a few years later to be able to establish. But now we understand a lot of that. So when you have an NSM2 deficient mouse, what do you get? You get embryonic lethality, dwarfism, and also, interestingly, fragile bone structures. So that led to some discussion about what's causing that. And all I can tell you right now is that it appears that NSM2 is essential for T cell receptor signal amplification and the, sustain, the sustaining of the low antigen dosing inducing P protein kinase C zeta dependent microtubule polarization and vesicular transport. Okay, so this is really essential for T cell receptor mediated responses. Okay, really cool, right? That was the Spring of My Life. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry saying bye for now.